Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, well, the Smithsonian Magazine Online has let us know that drought has revealed a rare American lion fossil in dried up Mississippi River. Hmm. Wow. All right. I mean, lion fossils, like I pictured dinosaur fossils is because they fell into the La Brea tar pits or something. How do you fossilize a lion? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it takes a really long time, I suspect. <laughs> As we all know, this drought, specifically in the Mississippi, we've got such low water levels that it has stranded barge traffic. It's threatened drinking water. All bad things. But hey, Wiley Pruitt found something black sticking out of the sand when he was exploring a newly exposed sandbar due to the drought. Upon closer inspection, he realized that he found a tooth and a pretty giant one at that. <laughs> He suspected, you know, it belonged to a carnivore, but wanted to learn more, so he decided to take his discovery to a Mississippi fossil and artifact symposium and ask the experts for confirmation. Mm -hmm. Well, now the paleontologists are saying that the tooth, which is attached to part of a fossilized jawbone, once belonged to a large American lion, Pantera atrox. It's a species that has been extinct for about 11,000 years. So they first arrived on the scene around 340,000 years ago, but fossilized evidence of their existence in the eastern United States is extremely rare. Pruitt's tooth is just the fourth specimen ever found in Mississippi. And not only that, the event I was talking about, this whole fossil and artifact event, well, they had been featuring the previously discovered American lion fossils uh when Pruitt walked in with his new find. Wow. <laughs> Scientists estimate that American lions were roughly 25% larger than today's African lions, according to the National Park Service. They stood about four feet tall at the shoulders, which Ooh. as a five foot two human being is both <laughs> alluring and terrifying. <laughs> and it measured five to eight feet in length. And some of the biggest American lions may have topped a thousand pounds. Wow. And because the American lion is just a different subspecies, it would have looked just like a supersized African lion. Hmm. So, you know, we might have continued low water levels. It might exacerbate drought conditions. But hey... Who knows what the fossil record may turn up next? Yeah, the museums in the apocalypse are going to be outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next link. This article comes to us from universetoday.com. It's titled, What Would Asteroid Mining Do to the World's Economy? Ooh. Mm. So about a decade ago, the prospect of asteroid mining saw a massive surge in interest. This was due largely to the rise of the commercial space sector and the belief that harvesting resources from space would soon become a reality. In a recent paper, a team of researchers from the University of Nottingham in Ningbo, China, examined the potential impact of asteroid mining on the global economy. 
Based on their detailed assessment that includes market forces, environmental impact, and the scale of mining, they show how asteroid mining can be done in a way that is consistent with the Outer Space Treaty, or in other words, for the benefit of all humanity. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From a material perspective, the rationale is that human growth is an exponential phenomenon that has been taking place ever since the Upper Paleolithic Era, about 50,000 to 12,000 years ago. As we approach the mid-21st century, the greatest challenge will be providing for an estimated 10 billion people worldwide amid the impacts of climate change. To prevent asteroid mining and the future space economy from becoming a Wild West-type situation, there are many calls for laws to be drafted that could prevent cutthroat competition and ensure that mineral wealth is used for the good of all humanity. This is in keeping with the Outer Space Treaty signed in 1967 between the US, the Soviet Union, and the UK, which were the most influential players in space at the time. The treaty has since been signed and ratified by 112 countries as of February 2022 and remains the most important piece of space legislation ever passed. Heysun and his colleagues began their analysis with an appraisal of the global situation and space exploration capabilities of various countries. They then focused on creating a model that would measure the impact of space mining on global equity and formulating policies that would ensure as much as possible that all people would share the benefits. The first step was to calculate a unified equity index for each country, which consisted of an analysis of six factors, economic, education, science and technology, health, environment, and social stability. From this, they obtained an equity index for the entire world based on the entropy of each country's UEI. This brought them to step two, where the impact of asteroid mining was simulated based on the types of asteroids being mined. Whereas C-type, chondrite asteroids, the most common, contain large amounts of carbon and are composed mainly of clay and silicate rocks, S-type, or stony asteroids, are composed of silicate minerals and metal, nickel, iron, and M-types are mostly metallic. They also considered which entities were involved, private, national, international, and changing mineral values over time. In particular, their model looked pretty far into the future, such as how the value of minerals would change between 2025 and 2085, coinciding with the expected growth of asteroid mining in the century. Ultimately, their model showed that without regulation, the gap between space-competitive entities, as in countries with space programs and companies with advanced space capability and other entities, would increase profoundly and equity within nations would become graver. To this end, they made some specific recommendations. We suggest the UN add the Mining Information Policy, Mineral Legacy Policy, Mutual Assistance Policy, Antitrust Policy, and Transaction Guidance Policy to the updated version of the Outer Space Treaty. There are unimaginably tremendous resources in space, and if we do not exploit and distribute them wisely, the consequences will be severe. These efforts are intended to prevent a free-for-all that could turn space into the next scramble for resources, territory, and imperial ventures. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) I mean, that seems it's nice, but it seems completely unrealistic. I also think it's interesting that they are focusing really hard on we go out there, we get these resources. How do we share them equally with people who are still on Earth? I think one of the far more immediate and bigger equity concerns is going to be how do you treat the workers who are mining those substances? Mm -hmm. Because that's where you end up with this like company store exploitative kind of situation where you've got oh yeah Bioshocks right their whole life (laughs) yeah. Yeah, we've yet to see whether or not the UN actually has true legislative or legal power Mm -hmm. over space stuff. But hey, Mm -hmm. there's a treaty, so maybe people are following it. I guess we'll find out by 2085. (laughs) (laughs) Or we'll all be dead from drought. One of the two, you know? (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, speaking of things exposed by drought, this next one comes from Atlas Obscura, and it's called How Did a World War II Boat 
end up at the bottom of a California lake. I mean, whatever happened with the lion, I presume, is the same thing that happened here. <laughs> right, exactly. The boat fell in the lake. The lion fell in the lake. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so the story starts with James Dunsden, who is a volunteer firefighter working in the Shasta Trinity National Forest in Northern California. As we said, the area has been suffering some pretty bad drought conditions for a while now, leaving the water level of Shasta Lake at its lowest point in more than 40 years. And Dunstan heard a rumor that a mysterious boat had been revealed somewhere along the lake's 365-mile shoreline. So he gets online and somehow finds a YouTube video of some campers that shows the boat in the background. And because he's a big military history buff, he immediately recognizes the shape of it. Which, Hmm. to be fair, a lot of people probably would, because this boat in particular is called a Higgins boat, also known as an LCVP, Basically, it's a D-Day boat, the kind with the big front panel that flops down for a beach landing. Hmm. Of course, the most famous D-Day was storming the beaches at Normandy. But in fact, during World War II, all beach invasions were known as D-Day. That was just general terminology they used. And these boats were absolutely critical to their success. Dwight Eisenhower even said in 1964 that Andrew Higgins, the designer of the Higgins boat, is the man who won the war for us. And one of the things that made them so great at the time was that they were made of wood, so they didn't have to draw on the country's steel reserves to make them. Unfortunately, this also means that fewer than 20 of these boats survive today. So Dunstan, of course, realizes how important this thing is. He decides he has to find it. So he asks the owner of the video, hey, where were you? And they really don't know. It was just somewhere on the south fork of the lake. So (laughs) then he starts analyzing the angle of the sun in the video and digging into it. And finally, in October of 2021, he has it narrowed down to an area small enough that he decides he's just going to hike the whole thing until he finds it. And he does. And the thing is in nearly perfect condition. He's so excited. So he goes back to the Shasta Trinity Forest Service and says, you guys got to pull this thing up out of the water. It's an important piece of history. And they basically tell him, listen, that's nice. We have two major forest fires that we're dealing with right now. Get back to us when wildfire season is over. And he says, no, 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 we can't wait. Because by definition, wildfire season is over when it starts raining again, which means the water level in the lake is going to go up and we won't be able to find it anymore. And they say, look, draw up a salvage proposal. We'll approve it. And then the boat's yours and you can do whatever you want with it. But you're paying for it. It's your problem. (laughs) So he's like, "Okay, I can scrounge together the money for that, I guess. And his first plan was to use an excavator and a crane. But by the time his proposal was approved, the water level in the lake had already started to rise for the season. (laughs) So so instead, he had divers go down and attach inflatable airbags that lifted the boat fully off the ground to the surface, at which point they were able to tow it to the beach and load it onto a trailer. And once it was fully out of the water, they could see the white ID number still painted perfectly on the front, 3117. So now they could figure out where it came from. Higgins Boat 3117 was assigned to the USS Monrovia, which was General Patton's headquarters when the Allies invaded Sicily in July of 1943. It was later involved in the Battle of Tarawa in the Pacific and may have even been used in as many as five additional invasions that the Monrovia took part in. (laughs) Unfortunately, they still haven't been able to figure out just how the heck it got from the Pacific Theater to a lake in California. (laughs) I'm telling you, same thing as a lion. Dunstan's best guess is that it was retrofitted at a West Coast naval base after the war and then sold as surplus. But beyond that, they just don't know. 
At any rate, it now sits on his home property in the shade and under some water misters, because apparently after spending several decades underwater, it's important from a preservation standpoint that the wood not be allowed to dry out too quickly. This is apparently advice that Dunstan received from another man who found a different Higgins boat on a riverbank in France about 20 years ago. So once 3117 is fully dry, the plan is for it to become part of the National Guard Museum in Columbus, Nebraska, which is the birthplace of Andrew Higgins. Dunstan said, quote, I'm not really the owner. I mean, legally, maybe, but this is a piece of world history. But yeah, my, my guess is it was all out of his own heart and pocket. And his wife was just like, we're done with this. No oh, more. Yeah. We have nowhere to put it. What are you going to do? Get a storage unit for it? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she wants that thing out of her yard immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. We've got a pretty interesting piece from Wired about a copyright lawsuit that could shape the future of generative AI. We all saw this coming, right? These new algorithms that create art and text and code, they're multiplying at an alarming rate, but legal challenges might start to slow things down a bit. A class action lawsuit filed in a federal court in California this month takes aim specifically at GitHub Copilot, and that's a powerful tool that automatically writes working code when a programmer starts typing. The coder behind the suit argues that GitHub is infringing copyright because it does not provide attribution when Copilot reproduces open source code covered by a license requiring said attribution. Hmm. So the lawsuit is at a very early stage and its prospects are unclear because the underlying technology is super new and has not faced a lot of legal scrutiny. But legal experts say it may have a bearing on the broader trend of generative AI tools. So Copilot is a really powerful example of the creative and commercial potential of generative AI tech. And GitHub made it by training an algorithm on the vast collection of code it stores, producing a system that can preemptively complete large pieces of code after a programmer makes just a few keystrokes. A recent study by GitHub suggests that coders can complete some tasks in less than half the time normally required when using Copilot as an aid. So it's already kind of proving its worth. But as some coders quickly notice, Copilot will occasionally reproduce recognizable snippets of code cribbed from the millions of lines in public code repositories. You know, even the guy filing the lawsuit is saying, as a technologist, I'm a huge fan of AI. I'm looking forward to all the possibilities of these tools. But They have to be fair for everybody. So the response, well, the CEO of GitHub, Thomas Domke, says that Copilot now comes with a feature designed to prevent copying from existing code. So it's a toggle, right? When you enable this, it will not make that suggestion. So not sure if this is going to provide enough legal protection. It's kind of TBD. And like we said, the coming legal case may have a lot broader implications. So this is going to sound like a tangent, but bear with me. (laughs) These issues seem to be reflected a whole lot to me in the kind of already semi-settled question of the copyright of recipes and cookbooks. Because interestingly, a long time ago, actually, the courts ruled a recipe, the facts of a recipe are not copyrightable. The only thing that is copyrightable when it comes to cookbooks are actual photos of the food that you took. And those stories about this was my grandma's whatever. Mm -hmm. And that is why when you go, you see people complain about this. When you go onto cooking websites and you get like this massive dump of personal information 
The reason mm-hmm. they have that is because without that, the recipe, you can literally take the contents of a cookbook, copy out the recipes, and publish it as your own. Mm-hmm. And there is absolutely nothing that the chef can do about it. Jeez. So, but the idea of like the code as information that does something. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the recipe. <laughs> right. Maybe that becomes something that is not copyrightable, but things like the user interface, this is something that has style to it as opposed to functionality. Therefore, we say that part is copyrightable. Obviously, who knows what they're going to actually decide in the court system, but I feel like we're definitely heading to a point where pieces of code or other functional inventions are going to not be copyrightable. That's my yeah. two cents. <laughs> it, it is a very interesting way to think about it because, you know, I am a programmer and I actually have used Copilot. I have it enabled and it's super useful. But a lot of what I use it for is for tasks that are so obvious and direct that I would basically just end up typing the exact same thing myself out of my head. And so when it comes to those sorts of things, it really is like a recipe. And in the world of code, you can copyright protect the code itself, but you cannot copyright protect a description of the algorithm, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, theft, intellectual theft happens all the time in the tech world because it's not even necessarily on purpose because you just Mm -hmm. work at one place, Mm -hmm. you learn how to solve a certain type of problem, and then you go solve it the same way somewhere else because that's the right solution, you know? Right. It's like copywriting math. You can't say, well, no, I Mm -hmm. discovered 2 plus 2 is 4, so you can't ever use that. It's like, (laughs) no, that's just a fact. Yeah. Yeah. There is, just to, you know, go on a little bit further, there is another interesting component to it with the idea of copy left. Like there are some code licenses where you must not only include attribution, but any code that it touches also becomes open source as well. So if you use GPL code within your code, even if you're running a business, somebody can request that you share the source code of your business and you have to share it. And that's kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, it sounds very cool and idealistic in the beginning. But in my opinion, what it actually does is it disincentivizes building services at scale and it disincentivizes innovation using those things because you just end up having to rebuild the wheel. Whereas Mm -hmm. the most popular projects are those that use the very inobtrusive MIT license where you can use it for anything. You can open source it, you can Mm -hmm. derive it, you just have to include the license, but you don't have to open source your business's code itself. Your finished version. Exactly. And so, you know, you might be doing something derivative or combining things in a unique way. You know, it's like the the secret herbs and spices of your (laughs) uh, company or whatever. Well, and to draw in a completely different metaphor as well, I think something that has kind of solved this problem is the patent rights on medications. Because what they effectively have is the same thing as your creative stuff goes into the public domain after whatever it is at this point, 75 years after your death. But for medicine patents, I think it's like seven years. And that's the window of time you have to make your profit back on the R&D money you spent. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it's open for generic season. And Mm -hmm. so maybe the answer is just, yeah, you can have ownership for a little bit, but that window is very, very short. And then it's everybody's and there's nothing you can do. That sounds like the kind of compromise Elizabeth Warren would have come up with. (laughs) Right. I'm secretly Elizabeth Warren this entire time. I haven't told (laughs) you. Well, that's why we're such good friends. Okay, next link. (laughs) Next link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, At 52, I Abandoned Everything, Every Friend, Every Family Member, The Top Official Who Escaped Scientology. Ooh. So this is a story about Mike Rinder. He was so entrenched that Tom Cruise gave him birthday presents, a fancy watch and a set of Bose headphones. Mm. 
He earned promotion after promotion within the Sea Organization, a sort of executive order, and was flown around the world and entrusted with taking Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley on a private tour of the Los Angeles Museum devoted to Scientology's founder, L. Ron Hubbard. But after more than 45 years in the notoriously secretive church, which he now regards as a mind prison, he <laughs> broke out. Fifteen years on, he has written a book about his time inside. Some of the details are eye-watering, but what Rinder, now 67, really hopes is that a billion years, my escape from a life in the highest ranks of Scientology, will act as a rescue operation for his two adult children who remain in the church. <sighs> Rinder, who grew up in Adelaide, Australia with his brother and sister, was five years old when a neighbor introduced his parents to Scientology. During his high school years, the family relocated to England for months at a time so they could study at Hubbard's Sussex base. Rinder had lived in church quarters, took meals in its military-style canteen, and worked for at least 14 hours a day, seven days a week, for a stipend of $50 a week. Rinder says he plotted his escape for only three days before leaving, but Oof. it must have taken more than a few days to undo decades of belief. After all, he was sufficiently immersed to be convinced of an origin story that involves Xenu, the head of the Galactic Confederacy, mm -hmm. shipping humans to Earth, sticking them in volcanoes, and dropping bombs on them. <laughs> He says it was in the years after David Miscavige, the current leader, became head of Scientology in 1987 following Hubbard's death that things started to happen to shake his certainty. In the book, Rinder writes that he was physically assaulted by Miscavige. Other punishments for perceived unhandled evil intentions or for perceived alleged failings at work ranged from cleaning a sewage retention pit to wearing a mask made from a paper plate and being taunted by a ventriloquist doll built in his own image. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that it's horrible. This guy was was tortured, but that's a really funny punishment. <laughs> yeah, it, you know. At other times, employees were made to jump fully clothed into a swimming pool and commit our sins to the deep. Rinder says he says worst by a long way was the year or more that he spent in a building known as the Hole at the church's international base near Helmet, California. He was initially sent there to explore his subversive intentions, though at the time he didn't have any. And then again, when as director of the Office of Special Affairs, he failed to prevent the BBC show Panorama from airing a program on Scientology. Hmm. Here he lived under 24-hour guard in a sort of prison camp for fallen Scientology executives with no access to the outside world and no explanation of what crime had earned the placement. He suffered violence and he inflicted it on others. He says it was part of the culture. Anyone who didn't do it was subjected to discipline. Remarkably, even after that, Rinder continued in his faith, identifying as a Scientologist while he worked as a car salesman, his first job on the outside. It was really only that he wanted Miscavige to leave. So if Hubbard were still alive today, I would probably still be there, he says. Wow. He still sounds excited when he recalls being appointed Hubbard's special watch messenger in 1978, where orders range from telling the cook that Hubbard wanted chicken for dinner <laughs> to smelling the laundry, which had to be rinsed seven times and aired outside to ensure it was odorless. Wow. He says of the position, I mean, there is a very limited number of people on this earth that have ever done that. <laughs> That's true. true. You can't, yeah. I mean, there's no lie. The funny thing is that now that he is out and his faith has lost its grip, Rinder still doesn't seem very free. Whistleblowing activities account for about 60% of Rinder's working life now, and the other 40% is spent installing audiovisual equipment in the business of another XC org member who has also written a book about Scientology. Hmm. Rinder has contributed to countless documentaries about Scientology, including Leah Ramini's Scientology and the Aftermath. He co-presents a podcast with her, too. He has a post-Scientology blog. 
His closest friends are former Scientologists, as is his second wife, Christy Colbrand. In a sense, he is a professional former Scientologist. He says, I don't think that I will ever be able to shed this particular job. People contact me every single day asking for help. Besides, he says, he wants to give his two children the chance to think for themselves. Yeah. Back then, Rinder says his babies were handed over a few days after birth to Sea Org nurseries, where they were cared for seven days a week from morning till midnight. Wow. He says, I'm not saying I was a good parent. I'm saying the exact opposite. After his escape, he wrote to Kathy to ask her and the children to join him on the outside, and she wrote back, F off. <sighs> I mean, that makes sense. He knows exactly how hard it is to get out. I mean, you got to have hope, but I also think you got to walk away knowing your children may not come with you. <sighs> yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from Ars Technica, and it's called Oxford Scientist's Crack Case of Why Ketchup Splatters from <gasps> Near Empty Bottle. Finally. I know. Important stuff. Right? <laughs> Initially, it does kind of seem like this study falls into the category of like, hey, shouldn't you be curing cancer? But <laughs> to be fair, they do eventually get around to explaining why this knowledge could be useful in non-ketchup-based settings. But we're definitely going to talk about some ketchup first. <laughs> so the two Oxford scientists are named Callum Cuddle and Chris McMinn. And they conducted, quote, a series of experiments to develop a theoretical model for ketchup splatter. And one of the most important aspects of this study, it turns out, is the fact that ketchup apparently qualifies as a non-Newtonian fluid. This oh. is in contrast to what Isaac Newton first described as an ideal liquid whose viscosity is dependent only on temperature and pressure. So water, for example, continues to behave like water, regardless of whether you're aggressively stirring it or just gently sloshing it around. A non-Newtonian fluid, however, will start to take on the properties of a solid when a shearing force is applied. And there's lots of kids science projects that play with this, right? Those gooey substances that are hard if you squeeze them but start to melt as soon as you relax your hand. And generally, this sort of thing happens when your liquid is actually a mixture of substances. In the case of ketchup, it's the tiny bits of tomato solids that are suspended in the other liquid ingredients that give it these non-Newtonian properties. Some other fun examples of this, apparently, include blood, gravy, <gasps> pudding, and hagfish slime. Goodness, what a collection. <laughs> I know, it really was. And it was just like, by the way, here's some others. <laughs> so if you imagine a ketchup bottle filled with water, you flip it over, you squeeze, the water's going to come out in a straight jet until you stop squeezing, at which point air bubbles are going to suck inward to replace the liquid you squeezed out, right? Mm -hmm. But with ketchup in the ketchup bottle, because it's a non-Newtonian fluid, the air pressure behind the ketchup is affecting the viscosity of the ketchup, making it effectively more solid the harder you squeeze. <laughs> this, this means that there will come a tipping point when the air pressure exceeds the viscosity and forces its way through the ketchup in the nozzle, thus resulting in splatter. The question, of course, is where is that threshold and how can we avoid it? Because no one likes ketchup splattering on their burger, let alone blood or gravy or hagfish slime. <laughs> So to really pin down the physical model, Cuddle and McMinn used syringes of first ketchup and then other fluids, each with different amounts of air behind them, as well as different plunging pressures and different nozzle sizes. And long story short, every non-Newtonian fluid is going to have its own, quote, critical splatter threshold. <laughs> and even different recipes of ketchup are not going to behave in exactly the same way. So there are no hard numbers that are going to be useful to anyone here. But generally speaking, Air is compressible and liquids are not. So the more air there is in the syringe, which is to say the closer the ketchup bottle is to being empty, 
the more pressure is created by the same level of squeezing, which is kind of a difficult because there's also like the speed of the squeeze. But at any rate, (laughs) more air is more pressure and that's bad. So to stay under that splatter threshold, you have to squeeze less and less or slower and slower as the bottle gets more air in it, which I think is something most people have sort of instinctively figured out if they've spent any amount of time with a ketchup bottle. (laughs) But more relevantly, Cuddle and McMinn also showed that having a bigger nozzle on your ketchup bottle is going to reduce that buildup of pressure and give you more leeway in squeezing without splattering. What's more... Those little plastic valves that some manufacturers are putting on their ketchup bottles these days, those create an added pressure that the ketchup has to overcome to exit the bottle, which means the valves may reduce dripping, but they actually make splatter worse. Then, literally in the very last sentence of the article, they say some other contexts where this non-Newtonian fluid splatter model might be relevant include aquifers that store captured CO2, certain types of volcanic eruptions, and reinflating collapsed lungs. So, you know, real science, but they framed the entire thing in terms of ketchup, I assume, to make it better clickbait. I mean, even scientists got to get attention. (laughs) But now we know. Squeeze slower, have a bigger nozzle, and don't eat ketchup? I don't know. I mean, (laughs) that all is presupposing that you're getting your ketchup from a squeezable bottle. I mean, isn't the classic Heinz bottle notoriously rigid glass? Yeah, if you're using old-fashioned ketchup, none of this applies. But I assume if you're reinflating a lung, all of it applies. (laughs) Bring us that hagfish slime stat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include, Could Cloud Brightening Slow the Thawing of the Arctic? An AI found an unknown ghost ancestor in the human genome and genetically modified tobacco plant produces cocaine in its leaves. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 